Okay, looks like we hit the magical threshold of 920. <clears throat> we'll begin with an invocation of prayer and then jump into Proverbs chapter 15. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, in chapter 15, we'll pick up right around verse 11, 12, somewhere in there. I know we had covered 11. We talked about Sheol and Abaddon. These things lying open before the Lord, though very much veiled to man. So how much more then are the hearts of the children of man open to him? Then at verse 12, a scoffer does not like to be reproved. That's the first half and the second half. He will not go to the wise. So I think not only does he not like to be passive and be reproved by someone, but he does not like to be active and go to the wise. So obviously the point of this proverb is not to be a scoffer. 13 through 17 form a very loose unit. A glad heart makes a cheerful face, but by sorrow of heart the spirit is crushed. The heart of him who has understanding seeks knowledge, but the mouths of fools feed on folly. All the days of the afflicted are evil, but the cheerful of heart has a continual feast. Better is a little with fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. Okay, so you can see these kind of loosely organized around a few themes. The heart pops up here and there throughout. Let's go ahead and take a closer look. So at 13, a glad heart makes a cheerful face. Okay, that's obvious, but sometimes what's on the inside reflects on what's on the outside. And there is an effect between our inner life and our external appearance. And of course we know this. We know people who look dour or grumpy, perpetually irritated. We know people who look arrogant, haughty, uh, vain. So we can determine much by the external appearance of the nature of a person's internality. But then we reflect 
more deeply, and this is a theme we've touched on very briefly before, and I think we'll touch on it again, and that's the idea that the inner life, though, is known only to the one who experiences it. So there's a, the inner life at one time is, in, or in one sense, is revealed through the exterior of a person, but in another sense, the internal life is hidden and impenetrable. So you can see the contrast between these two lines. A glad heart makes a cheerful face. What's inside comes out, but by sorrow of heart, the spirit is crushed. Nobody sees that. Nobody knows that. And of course, you've got glad heart, sorrow of heart, um, just as a meditation and one that ties in with some of the other language of heart and the theme of the inner life. So next at uh, chapter 15, verse 14 of Proverbs, the heart of him who has understanding seeks knowledge. So here you have a heart actively seeking and then the mouth of fools feed on folly. So the idea of seeking knowledge or feeding on folly, that's the primary contrast. And I don't know that this proverb is covered, you know, is covering some new ground that we haven't previously covered. So I'm just going to kind of move quickly over it unless you want me to pause. I mean, it is, it is probably a fair if not tangential warning to say, be careful what you consume (laughs) by way of media, uh, because what you consume will end up affecting you in ways that uh, you might not readily acknowledge. But boy, isn't it true, even for take something like the news, you can just watch the news and get into a terrible mood, get really depressed and really down. You can turn on the internet, read one headline and be like, that's enough internet for today. Done with that. So you can also, I mean, we, I think we have vastly underestimated the power of sitcoms and media to catechize our families and to, and to inculcate worldly ideas into us. So be careful what you eat because it is a fool who feeds on folly and it's just this kind of self-perpetuating picture there. But rather, the heart of him who has understanding seeks knowledge. So pursue knowledge, pursue whatever is true and right and noble and pure and those things of which the scriptures speak. Okay, so again, we have then a second verse on meditating on the heart, the inner life. Verse 15, all the days of the afflicted are evil. So that's quite the statement. So, yeah, so you can take this in a number of different ways. All the days of the afflicted are evil. So if you're afflicted, there's... (laughs) What's that t-shirt, that slogan that... um, I think it's like a surfwear slogan or something. It says, no bad days. This would be a shirt that says, no good days. So I'm speaking of that which I do not know because I don't have a clue what that brand stands for or means or anything else. I just see the shirts once in a while. Which always gives me pause though. No bad days or um, life is good. Remember that company with that slogan once in a while? 
I mean, I know I'm reading it superficially. I don't know what the brand actually means or stands for. But just superficially, when you look at that, you're like, well, if it is, why would you have to say it is? <laughs> if life is so good, why, do you, why, why wouldn't that be self-evident? It comes off almost like a boast. It's bizarre. Anyway, sorry for that tangent. So... All the days of the afflicted are evil. One who is afflicted experiences all things as evil. That's one possible read. But the cheerful of heart has a continual feast. So that is to say to be cheerful of heart versus afflicted. That's the contrast. So it seems to me as though we're talking about internal realities once again. And so the internal reality of one who believes themselves to be afflicted, cursed, etc. There's nothing good. Everything is always evil. Whereas by contrast... One who has a cheerful heart has a continual feast, and even when sorrows come, there's a kind of joy that can't be touched. Now, as we read this in, in the way we ought, we know that that joy which cannot be touched is the love of God for us in Christ Jesus. It's the blessings of the gospel. It's the knowledge of the Father's goodness that come what may, whether it's affliction or blessing, we know it comes from his fatherly hand. We can remain cheerful. Kind of to really shorten the entire book of Job <laughs> and hopefully not distort it too much. If we have God, we don't need anything else. Not even the answers. God is sufficient. So that is then, I think, the ground, obviously unspoken here. But that is the ground of what it is to have a cheerful heart and thus to be able to have a continual feast. Many of the early church martyrs went to their deaths praising God and singing and joyful. It was a feast to them. It was a blessed occurrence to them. All right, so I think we're still, you can see the linkage. We're talking about the heart, the inner life in 13 and 14. And here too in 15, we're reflecting on the inner life of one who is afflicted or perceives themselves to be and the inner life of one who is cheerful of heart by contrast. Okay, verse 16 is not unfamiliar to us in the Proverbs. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord. So better to be poor and have the fear of the Lord would be an application of this verse. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble without it. Or great and, uh, excuse me, than great treasure. Excuse, gosh, I am just botching this. Can I start over? Better is a little... With the fear of the Lord, then great treasure and trouble with it. Okay, so I think the idea here is, well, this is so often the case, that if you have the fear of the Lord, you're not going to have much by way of mammon. (laughs) The Lord loves the poor and loves to work through poverty on his people. There are precious few exceptions to that. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord. That's obvious. That having great treasure, what does it profit a 
man to gain the whole world but lose his soul. And, boy, I'm on a roll with my quotations today. As the famous theologian P. Diddy once said, <laughs> more money, more problems. So, <laughs> so the idea here that um, great treasure brings trouble with it. Everybody wants to get rich, but then once you're rich, do your troubles end? No. Elsewhere in the scriptures, as, as riches grow, so do those who desire them. Or so do those who consume them. So, money is what we all foolishly pursue in a fallen world, and it brings with it only trouble. Whereas if we focused our attention rather on fear of the Lord and entrust ourselves to Him, as Christ would say, seek first the kingdom of God, then these other things will be added unto you. And even if that's a little, you are nonetheless better off than having a lot with its trouble. So I think to the first way is, or the first verse there, or part of the verse, is the way of faith. And the second, more the way of unbelief. Pursuing great treasure, pursuing the Lord. All right. 17, better is a dinner of herbs where love is. So... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this is great. This is great because you sit down at the dinner table and your wife lovingly says, dinner is served, and she puts down a salad. <laughs> no, really, really, where's dinner? Uh, this is dinner. No, it's not. It can't be dinner. So, okay, that's the point of this proverb. Better is a dinner of herbs. <laughs> Better is nothing but salad to eat. Oh my gosh. Remember in the 90s? I don't know if this was a, maybe this was just a regional thing. In the Pacific Northwest in the 90s, all the women got obsessed with kale. It was the new superfood. They were all growing their kale and they were so proud of it. My mom, too. We had to take, she wanted photos of the kids next to the kale. (laughs) And of course, we took this to absurd lengths. We referred to kale as our sibling. <laughs> Kale was kept outside. But, you know, any conversation would be like, bedtime, wolf for Kale, too? Does he have to go? Yeah. So then, have you ever tasted Kale? Like intentionally? You only do it once. It's bitter and nasty. But better is a dinner of Kale where love is. Better to have terrible food and loving people around you in a loving house. That's the point. And here's the contrast. Then a fattened ox, which is like, you know, filet mignon or surf and turf or whatever it would be in our culture, just the very best. And you've got hatred all around. Oof. That's a, that's a bitter reality of domestic life, isn't it? From time to time it happens. There's this glorious meal and it just tastes like ash in your mouth because there's so much hostility or stress or tension in the air. Gosh, I'd rather everybody be happy and be eating toast than eating this feast with everybody angry. Yeah, so a wonderful kind of proverb of the internal life of the household. So I think that that's a way of tying 
that in. So then on reflection where you've got these you've got these two 16 and 17 beginning with better is and better is. You've got those addended to 13 through 15. Probably this sort of internality continues the fear of the Lord, the inner pursuit versus great treasure. And then here the inner life of the family where there's love is you can put up with anything where there's hatred even the greatest blessings cease to be all right let's uh let's pause there let's get some reflections or comments or something i'm having too much fun up here by myself I was going to ask you, uh, the nature of some people I've observed is they enjoy to be in a state of a pity party, more or less, you know. Oh, yeah. It feels good uh, to feel bad. Yeah. Where, where does that come from? What, what, what causes that? You know, it's, I mean, I don't think they can help it, but they just want to feel mm. down. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I don't know too much about delving into sort of the the root and genealogy of that but obviously it's a obviously it's a manifestation of self-centeredness it feels really really good to pity oneself it's also a profound mark of immaturity which i hate because every time i start to pity myself i say that to myself and then i you know get grumpy but also tend to get over it because who wants to be immature but self-pity tends to be immature um, and self-pity, ah, it feels good to feel bad. That's the, that's the enticement to depression. When you start, it feels great. feels great. Um, what else does it do? It has a payoff until you can't, until you realize the payoff was superficial. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Hey, I'm sorry, I just wanted no, to... No, thank you for that. That's so well put. That's so well put, yeah. I mean, that's why we... It kind of is. I'm not trying to, like, label the whole genre as, like, disordered or something. But that's kind of the nature of blues music. It's why you might watch a soap opera where things go bad, or things go wrong. Or, women always do this, don't they? They watch the medicine shows and the law shows, meditations on bad stuff that happens. <laughs> <laughs> I know that's not the point. The point is always that there's a savior there to save the day. But yeah, why do we? Uh, why are we drawn to meditations on um, sorrow? And why do we resonate with them? And why do we like to pity ourselves? And why does feeling bad feel good? At least for a while. I think the comment in the back is exactly right. At least for a while, until it doesn't, or until it becomes. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's a strange phenomenon. Of course, it can manifest itself in kinds of hypochondria. And there's all kinds of hypochondria. It's like the hypochondria that manifests and you go to the doctor all the time because you just love the attention. It's hypochondria, like you're constantly... So I think a lot of like stirring up drama, you know, overly dramatic people, it's just a form of psychological hypochondria. If there's always a problem, there's always somebody going, oh, and listening to you and making you feel better and all this stuff. So this sort of, um, yeah, I suppose as I think about it, there's even kinds of spiritual hypochondria. 
you know, the, uh, the perpetual martyr. <laughs> That's a... <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, the only thing I, I caution you on is uh, you have to remember all the movies that are started off, the murder mysteries and stuff like yeah. that. It's around the dinner table, and nobody's getting along, so don't kill <laughs> off the industry. Right. <laughs> right, thanks for the warning. Yeah, I, I'll take that. I'll take that. Yeah, I don't know. There's lots more we could. There's lots more we could talk about and think about in that vein. It's a strange phenomenon, but it's a common one. It's got lots of different. Uh, it's got lots of different facets to it. But maybe at the heart is this kind of self-pitying that manifests itself in all sorts of different ways. That's um, and self-pitying. You know, as I said earlier, it's immature. It's also kind of a disgusting thing. Um, one of the ways I, you know, you, you kind of, like, if you find yourself singing your own lament, <laughs> woe is me, you know, and usually it's just filled with first world problems and absurd things that, you know, no, no serious person would ever really be bent out of shape about, but here I am, you know. And so my slogan for myself, and sometimes for others in my domicile, the martyrdom of St. Jeremy. Right? There's the slogan. There's the slogan. When the complaining gets a little too rich, even for my own inner discourse. Oh, this is the, the hagiography of St. Jeremy ending with his martyrdom. It just jogs you into realizing that like these are little things that you're all wound up about. and The whole thing is absurd. And self-pity is really largely absurd. It's a kind of disease. It's kind of uh, turning in on oneself. You know, I think that's the biggest problem with it. Okay, anything else we want to talk about in this whole, this whole section of verses is fair game. My mother-in-law always said, it could be worse. She was German, so her accent was, it could be this. Uh, and so that really, now that she's gone, no matter what's happening, we always try to focus on what could possibly be worse and yeah. there is something <laughs> exactly always that right. could be always. worse always so it's you great. have to try to focus and be grateful that it could be worse That's whatever bad. it is i love it i love it it's so good <laughs> a a common uh motto almost that we used to teach in some of the elementary schools i worked at um it didn't work too well under sixth grade but fourth grade it it you start knocking on the door is life's not fair and the only good thing about it is it's not fair for everybody ah there you go there you go yeah my children don't like it and this is why i do it frequently when they say when they say that's not fair and I just like lean back real seriously and take a deep breath in like you're really assessing the case. And then you go, what is fair? <laughs> I mean, to a little child who wants instantaneous justice in the form of them getting their way, that is real frustrating and real delightful as a parent. <laughs> yes. Okay. Any other, uh, any other comments? Internal life meditated on here there's a hand maybe i'll take this in another direction uh, in please 15, do it says a cheerful heart has a continual feast 
Mm-hmm. Is there any meditation on that, that our continual feast is the Word and the Lord, and that's sort of a circular thing that gives us a cheerful heart? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we can get uh, very concrete in, you know, in this regard. The cheerful heart has a continual feast. Even when you think of the cheerful heart realizing the continued feast that is set in our midst of the body and blood of Christ, the great New Testament, that gift of life and salvation that renews itself each and every week. And so obviously that's, you know, this particular verse isn't that specific, but what a way to meditate on it. You know, it, you can, it's, it would be fun to play with this, with the second half of 15, especially in light of 17, to play with those ideas together. So, better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. So, the second half of 15, the cheerful of heart has a continued, continual feast. He's going to be joyful wherever he is, whatever there is to eat. Um, going to be rejoicing in this that or the other so it's a good thing to cultivate cheerfulness and it is kind of a an attitudinal thing it is within the purview of the will um just because you know you face a little bit of adver- adversity doesn't mean that's that's it it's a bad day from here on out there's no reconciling this thing my bad attitude is justified you know at any given time it's within the purview of the will to change that around, you know, and it, <laughs> our slogans for all that are trite, but they're kind of true nonetheless. So yeah, I think I think a cheerful heart is a heart made cheerful by the Lord. Look also at at sixteen and note this. So obviously in fifteen, a cheerful heart is the commendable thing, is the the worthy thing. In sixteen, better is a little with the fear of the Lord. So look at the proximity of the ideas of a cheerful heart and the fear of the Lord. Those two things go hand in hand. So fear of the Lord, to hold him in awe and reverence, to see him as your loving father, to hold his word above all things, and to have a cheerful heart are like, I don't think you can have one without the other, truly. You have to know who, that God is God and he's in charge and he is good and we are not. And that can set you free from a whole bunch of mental nonsense that we inflict upon ourselves. You know, I, I think Luther's great on this in the bondage of the will. Maybe he goes a little too far for some people's tastes. I don't know. But just the, the complete trust in God really allows one to let go and be in relative peace with what happens. I mean, so Luther, of course, doesn't use this language, but it's, an, it's kind of analogous to being on a river, okay? And you've got a boat and you've got a paddle. You can go this way or that, kind of. But only within bounds, only as the current and rapids and rocks allow. And that's, that's really analogous to our, our free will, which, of course, we like to get on a pedestal. And, oh, our free will. We're so free. No, you're not. I mean, viewed from this angle, not at all. You're presented with very small freedoms and very small decisions, all within the bounds that God has set, all within the bounds of the various conditionals of yourself and your life. You go, oh, I'm free. Well, what are you? 
Are you not a body? So, you're free. Let's, let's see what your decision-making process is like after about eight hours of no food. Right, so it just, it just kind of, that sort of thing, and it's one of the benefits of fasting, of course, but it's one of those things that shows that we're not as in control or as free as we think we are. Now, there's a blessed joy in that. Or don't, don't you know, understand me to say we should neglect our vocations or become quietistic or pacifistic or, uh, you know, let evil happen or just, you know, also don't mistake it as just some, you know, hippie mantra of go with the flow, man. That's not, you know, none of that is particularly the point. The point is, even as you conduct yourself faithfully within your vocations, win, lose, or draw, God is in control, and there's a peace in that. It's kind of a joyfulness in that, too. All right, anything else we want to talk about in that frame or otherwise? Then, let's go on. So, verse 18 a hot-tempered man, how sexist, stirs up strife. Oh, it's true. It's kind of like that, uh, it's kind of like that, remember the quiet word or the, the soft word that turns away the, the anger or the violent? Here is, um, here is the reverse of that. A hot-tempered man doesn't just affect him, it affects others, stirs up strife. Yeah, fathers do got to be careful of this because we set the tone in our households very frequently in terms of the emotion. So a hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. Yeah, even being around a hot-headed person or a short-tempered person can kind of make you feel, you know, kind of make you feel aggressive and hot-tempered. And then being around one who's patient, slow to anger, you know, quiets the contention, quiets the heart. This, this has a lot to do with maturity, too, unfortunately. Um, yeah, it's another thing to say to yourself to irritate yourself when you're sinning. You know, I'm hot-tempered, that's, that's a sign of immaturity. <laughs> uh, slow, slow to anger is how God is, slow to anger. He does get angry. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying don't be angry. Be angry and do not sin, the scriptures say. So there's a right place for anger. And maybe in truth, we've, uh, we need to get a little more angry, a little more vigorous in our lives as Christians. Um, but those comments aside, in general, obviously, to be slow to anger, not only actively quiets contention, but passively quiets contention in that you're setting a tone and a mood and a way of being. This is a, this is an, a, gift, a gift that uh, older men who have been through the battles and uh, maybe chief of which is their own hot-tempered nature and to one degree or another tamed it and, and or they've just seen enough conflict and enough strife that they're not excitable. And that is a profound blessing to young men, even if they're wise, even if they're good intentioned, even, you know, there's a sense when you're a young man that everything is important right now. <sighs> the battle has to be fought and won today. Someone on the internet is wrong. As soon as I correct them, then I'll come and get my chicken nuggets. No, that's, um, it's very helpful to have the sort of, you know, mature male who's just like, oh yeah, yeah, well, yeah, it needs to get dealt with, but just wait and see. Okay, well, 
that battle was lost, but that battle's not the war. Calm down. <laughs> Refocus, re-strategize. Okay, so a hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he was slow to anger quiets contention. 19, the way of a sluggard is like a hedge of thorns. But the path of the upright is a level highway. So the upright, as he goes about his path, it's a level highway. It's straightforward. It's easy. The upright here is contrasted with the sluggard just like a hedge of thorns so he can't get through it being a sluggard makes one more slow being a sluggard brings with it a path that's like a hedge of thorns in contrast the path of the upright is a level highway and again that's just faithfulness towards God that's those themes we were meditating on a moment ago um being upright is being in a state of repentance before God, in a state of faith where you know your sins are forgiven and you're moving forward in life with your vocations. You're balancing work and rest appropriately. You're not a workaholic, but nor are you a sluggard. It's the better way. Okay, if we haven't had this exact proverb before, we've had one or ten very similar to it. A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish man despises his mother. So it's multifaceted and asymmetrical. It has its own unique beauty. But the idea that wisdom and foolishness aren't just about you, but they have a profound effect on others. A father is glad when he has a wise son and sees his son's wisdom. The subject switches in the next part where it's a foolish man despising or looking down upon his mother. Boy, we've got a lot of foolish men in our culture, don't we? A whole generation of foolish people who want to blame the previous generation for all their problems. Okay, 21, a um, folly is a joy to him who lacks sense. Idiots do idiotic things and are happy about it. But a man of understanding walks straight ahead. I think this ties in very much with a sluggard is like a hedge of thorns, or the way of a sluggard is like a hedge of thorns. Folly is a joy to him who lacks sense. Like, you're not getting anywhere, you're not doing anything, you're relishing in foolishness. A man of understanding walks straight ahead. The upright has a level highway. So there's some, there's some nod to wisdom and industry and effort here in these Proverbs woven together. All right, I'll just go on a little further, even if arbitrarily. 22, without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. Obviously, we can think of exceptions to this. The Lord has a profound sense of humor, right? Men plan and God laughs. But as a general truth, 
when you have plans, you want to take counsel with others. That's wisdom, and wisdom means understanding that other people have wisdom, and that when the wise pool their wisdom, you're going to have a better plan and a greater likelihood of success. Without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. Okay, 23, to make an apt answer is a joy to a man. And a word in season, that's like a a fit word for the situation, how good it is. So I think that this is meditation on the benefits of wisdom and and the ability to give an apt answer. That in and of itself is joyful. You're serving your neighbor. And when you have the right word for the right time and place, it's a good and wonderful and delightful thing. So to just wax on that a little bit, one of the many reasons to study God's word and stay in God's word is for the good of your neighbor. It's so that you have an answer for them, so that you have a word of hope for them, so that you have somewhere where you can direct them to. So this kind of follows the theme again that wisdom isn't just for you and reading the Bible isn't just for you. It's going to benefit all the people around you as well. Twenty-four, the path of life leads upward for the prudent, that he may turn away from Sheol beneath. Sheol previously occurred in verse 11, along with Abaddon. And obviously this is a meditation on the way of life and the way of death. So the path or way of life leads upward, heavenward, for the prudent that he may turn away from shale beneath. Again, we've talked about this, how it's binary in nature. It's one or the other. You don't get any other choice. And I think that this proverb is helpful because it reminds us that what's being spoken of isn't just of temporal benefit or temporal reality, but we are, in fact, moving and going toward an end, and that is one of two ends. But that is profoundly helpful to keep in view, lest it just feel like life is an endless drudgery or it, wisdom is only for our neighbor and not for the future in any sense. Okay, 26. No, I'm sorry. Not there yet. 25. The Lord tears down the house of the proud, but maintains the widow's boundaries. So, as with 24, we're now meditating on things beyond the temporal, that there is a God who sees, who watches. There is a way of life and a way of death. Here we see that the Lord interjects his judgment sometimes, not always temporally and the Lord tears down the house of the proud or arrogant so to be proud or arrogant is to immediately have God against you as the proud he casts down the humble he exalts you remember that from the Magnificat and from it's one of Jesus' favorite motifs in his sermons And so the lowly here being lifted up by God is the widow. And the widow, of course, because she has no husband, usually 
Usually widow, when expressed in a position of weakness, has no family, and is just sort of out there on her own. But God looks out for the lowly, and so he maintains the widow's boundaries. So I think this proverb is a reminder that there's uh, someone looking down and the proud he will cast down and the lowly he will exalt and so walk accordingly. 26 is very similar in terms of meditation on the judgment of God. The thoughts of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord. But gracious words are pure. So gracious words, grace-filled words, the words of the righteous by contrast. Okay, well, yeah, it is pretty arbitrary, but let's just stop there. Let's see if you had any thoughts or reflections. Maybe you saw something different or read it in a different way. There's one in the back. Going back to verse 22 about counsel and your plans, I wondered if you could just give a little tiny tune-up on error, opposite error, with regard to thinking, God, show me the way, help me decide what I should do. You know, you want to live your life making good decisions, but it's wrong for us to think we're going to get a direct response or sign from God. We might, but we shouldn't wait for that or pursue that or play various Christianized games of Ouija board trying to figure it out. So I think maybe the most helpful way to start with this is... uh, with something that Luther popularizes in our midst, but as far as I can tell, it goes at least back to Augustine. And that's this idea that we do not have freedom in the things above us, but we do have freedom in the things below us. You can't, as a fallen human being who's spiritually blind, you can't choose to see the Lord. As someone who is spiritually dead, you can't choose to be alive to the Lord. That's because spiritual things of that nature are above you. You can't choose it. You have to be chosen. You have to be given eyes to see. You have to be raised with Christ Jesus, as Ephesians 2 teaches. So those are examples of things above us. But what are things below us? Well, very often it's the stuff of the first article of the creed or the left-hand kingdom. It's stuff like who you're going to marry, where you're going to work, what you're going to do in life, these kinds of considerations. All the way down to like, well, I had the extra squirt of caramel at the coffee shop or not? No, I suppose seven's enough. So... All of those things are things below us. Now, what American Christianity has done, especially the evangelicals, I'm sorry, not sorry, is they've inverted these things so that we have 
all the freedom of choice in the world when it comes to the things above us. Oh yeah, you can choose God. You can make a decision for Christ. You can invite him into your heart. You can do all those things that the Bible says there's no way you can ever do. (laughs) But then when it comes to the things that are below you, that are biblically given to you as free, all of a sudden it's, oh no, no, no. There is one unique path that God knows that I'm supposed to follow, but he won't tell me. Or he'll tell me, but I won't hear. Or he'll whisper it, but I don't know if I can understand it. So there's all this secret discernment of some supposed will of God. And, and, and again, just think about how cruel this is. Think about if you would do this with your kids. Son, there's 15 things I want you to do by the end of your day. And if you don't accomplish those things, at every step of the way, there's going to be a severe punishment. Okay, Dad, tell me what those 15 things are. No. Or, I'll tell you, but in a language you can't understand or won't be sure that you understand. Will the punishment still stand, Father? Oh, absolutely. It's capricious nonsense. And again, it comes from inverting this idea of we're free in the things above us and not free or bound in the things below us. So the scriptures, along with Augustine, Luther, this whole tradition, teach that we're bound in the things above us, but free in the things below us. So instead of deciding God's secret will, you need to realize you could have married the person you married, or you could have married 15 or 20 other people, and it would have been just fine. Likewise, if you're single, you can marry whoever you want to marry. You have no idea if it's going to go good, bad, or ugly. You have no idea. And you're not equipped with any information. And no one can equip you with any information. You have no idea what you're getting yourself into. And only God does. And it's utter foolishness, and it all springs from heresy, when you get into a marriage, or you get into a college, or you get into a line of work, and you say, I must not have heard God. I made a mistake. What God's really saying to me is, I should divorce my wife and go after this other really hot number. That's what the Holy Spirit really wants me to do. People really think this. People really speak this way. I should abandon my kids. That was a mistake. That was not the path that God had in mind for me. I've discovered that now. How did you discover it? It got difficult. So God allows us much choice. And what we need to do there is realize that he set us free. And now this is, might be to your point, especially with the proverb, we don't want to be abusive of that freedom. You don't want to just say, well, it's free, and, and so I'm just going to throw all wisdom out. I'm not going to take any counsel from anyone else. I'm just going to marry whoever, I, whoever looks the most attractive, whoever shows the least amount of interest in me. You know, that, this is not going to go well. So even on the things that we're left free in, we still want to use and leverage wisdom. So we want to ask our parents, hey, is this a wise spouse for me to choose? Parents tend to be able to see much greater than you can when you're anywhere from 17 to 25 or older. You know? So they've got, a, they've got quite a bit more view of how things work and how families are and whether or not you're in fact going to have a good time or a bad time. So it's worth taking counsel. Sometimes, I know it's hard to believe, sometimes even pastors can have insights in these regards come in and just lay it out on papers who he, who he is who she is you know that's what it looks like okay same with going to school 
know, what school are you going to go to? What college? What do you want to study? Well, why go to college? What do you want to get out of it? So to think about these things, to gather wisdom, to gather counsel, and then to, when it comes down to the decision, to make your decision in trusting that decision to the Lord. Based on everything I've been able to glean and gather, this is a wise path to take. It's a Christian path to take. You ask the Lord to bless that path. You do everything acknowledging the Lord, and you go into it. And that way, if it's a glorious parade of wonderfulness, you can say, thank you, God. And if it's an instantaneous, painful, exquisitely painful and excruciating cross that evidently is going to last for decades to come, you can thank God for it. And you can know that this is exactly what you need. As one of the most wonderful teachings in the 11th article on the doctrine of election in the formula of concord states God before the foundation he's riffing on a a verse from St. Paul by the way God before the foundation of the world not only chose you but chose the exact crosses you would bear by which and through which he would conform you into the image of his own beloved son so it might look like a mistake to you I never should have married so-and-so. Never should have went to the University of Nebraska. Well, that's true. Universally, always. (laughs) Never should have become a lawyer. Never should have done, you know, X, Y, or Z. Uh, You may feel that way, but this is what God had in store from before the foundation of the world. Thinking about it as if I made a mistake isn't right. It isn't true. Say, I did this thing thoughtlessly or foolishly, but be that as it may, the Lord has promised to work all things for the good of those who love him. And that's the glorious freedom that we have in these decisions that are below us. Identify as a decision below you. Is it a sin for me to do this or not? No. Is this wise for me to do or not? Yes. Go for it. Does it turn out wonderfully? God be praised. Did it turn out horribly? God be praised. Either way, he's planned that outcome ahead of time for your good and to conform you into the image of his son. That is to say, for your eternal glory, which no one ever chooses. Does the, you know, I know this is a little anthropomorphic, but the biblical motif of we are the clay, he is the potter. There's not a single lump of clay that says, you know, I'd like to be picked up smushed around, pounded, fingers jutted into me, spun around on a wheel, baked in a hot oven, not a single blob of clay wants that for itself. Nor do we want what the potter has in store for us. Again, I wake up every morning and the goal goal of every day is I don't want to suffer at all. God's like, well, then you're a lump of clay that doesn't want to become a Vessel, I've got something much more and much better in mind than you have. And in the end, you'll be glad for it. So he proceeds then to shape and mold. And we go, oh, that's uncomfortable. That's suffering. Okay. But as St. Paul says, these present sufferings, this present molding 
isn't worthy to be compared to that glory that will be unveiled. And that glory is not just, oh, yay, we get Disneyland for adults in, you know, in heaven. No, part of the glory to be revealed is the revelation of the sons of God. That's the revelation of the clay finally become the vessels. That's the revelation of you as God painstakingly brought you into the image of Christ to shine with the glory of Christ in your own unique way forever that he had in mind before you were even born. All of that comes to fruition and comes to unveiling and revelation on that last day. So, can you entrust yourself to the process? (laughs) Can you entrust yourself to him? If nothing else, can you simply endure in faith while the potter has his way with the clay? That's the essence, then, of what it is to be free and to make these decisions freely and to know that your Heavenly Father is with you, no matter the outcome. Okay? All right, anything you want to add to that? or Cast your bread upon the waters. Okay, how does that, how does that go? I, I've lost track of it. Is that how you catch fish? <laughs> Sounds like the way I'd fish at a lake where I was supposed to be swimming. See if you could catch any fish. Yeah, cast your bread upon the water. I don't know. I'd have to go look at that again, specifically in context. Back to the marriage thing. Yeah. Um, A friend had said she did this, and I started praying for my children's future spouses. Uh Uh-huh. So, I mean, is that, should we be praying that God leads them to a godly spouse, or should we be praying that the, our children, grandchildren make the correct decision? Well, all of the above. <laughs> yeah. I think I, we just, of course we pray for that because we pray for everything involving our children. Even right. when we just pray generally for their future and well-being, um, we pray that, that that would include a, a Christian spouse, uh, should God provide it. Um, And if not, that God would provide them blessings and benefits until or aside from, right? And yeah, the decision-making process that they'd be wise and make a good decision is right. But again, you can make a really wise, really well-counseled, well-advised decision and have everything ostensibly turn into a disaster. Does that mean it wasn't a good choice? Does that mean it wasn't wisdom that you received? Does that mean it wasn't God's path or plan? I think that's where we get all our thinking wrong. And this is where, you know, you can make a decision and backtrack. Like, let's say, you know, some disaster has befallen you because of some decision you made. You go back and you say, did I make the best possible decision I could with the information at the time? Did I get the advice and counsel of others? Is it clearly against God's word or not? In other words, if you sort of, you trace that back and you go, but it ended in disaster. Well, so what? What what were you supposed to do? Not do that? We're not gods. (laughs) We're human beings. So the outcome isn't in our hands. Uh, the process is to one degree or another, but even that process, we have to pray that God would bless, and He'll bless it. It's not always the way we think it should be. It should go, 
but then going back to the clay and the potter, maybe in a better way. Because frequently the way we think it should go is woefully insufficient and falls infinitely short of the glory that God has in mind for us. So, you know, you pray for an easy job and an easy life, and God's like, "Uh, no. My plan isn't to turn you from a lump of clay into like this little pool that can barely hold any of my blessings and graces. I go, yeah, but I really want it to be easy, and I'm going to be grumpy if it's not. I don't care. (laughs) You'll thank me in the end, trust me. And he goes to work, right? And And that's letting God be God and not getting all wound around the axle of our own minds. All right, the Lord be with you.